This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Well, folks, we have schedules. Not for every conference, but as of this recording, the ACC, Big Ten, and Pac-12 have released schedules, and the Big 12 and SEC have given the framework for theirs. The group of five conferences are starting to lay out their plans, most of which involve playing the games they already had in place and trying to fill the blanks left by the P5 conferences if and where they can. The stage is set for a football season in a pandemic. There is no guarantee any of these plans will be executed and games will be played, but we can dream. So to do that, I figured we could start previewing conferences. In the past, our conference preview episodes have gotten pretty in-depth, touching on every team in the conference. But the way the news has been, and considering how much time we have before actual games are played, I decided we need a little different approach. Today, we'll preview two conferences, the Pac-12 and the ACC. We'll preview the Pac-12 with John Wilner from the San Jose Mercury News. Nobody covers the Pac-12 better than the man behind the Wilner hotline. If you like Pac-12 football, he is a must-read. Hell, if you like major college football, he is a must-read. We'll preview the Atlantic Coast Conference with ESPN's David Hale. He is another must-follow. He concentrates mostly on the ACC, and nobody dives deeper into the numbers behind the teams better than Hale, who I also like to refer to as the sports writer whom I am most likely to agree with. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Apologize for coming to you and your feed a little late this week. It's been a crazy one. You can find us on Westwood One Podcast, Apple Podcasts, just about anywhere you get your podcast. Please subscribe. Give us a good review. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. All right, first up on the previewing the season additions. Additions. Hopefully there will be more than one because we'll be able to continue to preview the season before it possibly gets canceled. So the first conference we're going to preview here is the Pac-12. And joining me is the person who knows the Pac-12 better than anybody in the country, uh, John Wilner from the San Jose Mercury News. Wilner Hotline, if you uh, are a college football fan, not just a Pac-12 fan, but if you're a college football fan, you should read the Wilner Hotline and follow John on social media. John, thank you so much for doing this. There's a lot going on, but we are going to try to talk some football. We're going to do some of the non-football stuff, but we are going to try to also talk some football. So hope you're up for it. Yeah, no, that sounds great. I appreciate you having me. Let's start with some of the off-the-field stuff, because what you reported yesterday, I believe it was yesterday, we're recording this on a Thursday, which is later in the week than we anticipated, but that's the way things go these days. I believe you reported on Wednesday, as you do so well, got some internal documents that 
uh, showed that the Pac-12 is looking at possibly uh, getting some very big loans, sort of bailout loans, basically, to get them through what could be a short-term but very large revenue deficit. Now, the reason why this is important for not just beyond the Pac-12, because I've heard that this is a strategy, this is something that's been talked about, ADs have been talking about, that other conferences could look into. So let's start with that, because if we don't have a football season, this is how conferences might get through it. Yeah, I mean, we're talking, if there's no football season, you know, I think you could pretty much assume $75 million deficit on average across the 65 teams in the Power Five. I think that's solid. Yeah, that's a solid number. Yeah. You know, ticket sales, uh, donations, uh, TV money, postseason money, you know, that now for some schools, it's over 100. Uh, for some schools, it's probably closer to 50 or 60, but you know, we, we could assume that 75 and, and that's a ton of money. And so if you're a PAC 12 school, take, for example, and you're looking at a $75 million hole, well, you could cut Olympic sports, which lose money. You could lay off dozens and dozens of employees, You could turn to campus for help and beg for a loan from campus, uh, but all those things are problematic, right? Nobody wants to cut sports. Nobody wants to lay off people. And the campuses are strapped themselves, right, because there's going to be lower enrollment, less tuition. There's going to be less money coming in from dining services, less money coming in from housing. So the campuses themselves are strapped. So the Pac-12 decided, you know what? We're going to take door number three, uh, which is look into a loan that the conference would basically be the facilitator. And they use their media rights contracts with Fox and ESPN as essentially the collateral. And those contracts have got four years left, so there's plenty of money there. It's basically a billion dollars. Pac-12 uses those media rights as a collateral for a loan. The schools the athletic departments then say, I want, I need 50 million. Maybe one says I need 15 million. And it, you know, it would vary from campus to campus. My guess is the private schools, USC and Stanford probably wouldn't participate. Some of the public schools will probably take 50 million. Some will probably take 10 or 15 million. It it will totally depend on each school's financial situation, but the conference would basically operate the loan. Uh, they're talking about 10 years, 3.75%. I don't know if that's going to be the exact final number, you know, and we also don't know for sure if they're going to do it because there may be a football season or there may be half of a season. Uh, but that's, that is their plan. It's basically their escape hatch. So they don't have to fire people, cut sports or, or, you know, further drain central campus. Right. And there's some, so there's some context here that I think probably is worth explaining because the PAC 12, we talk a lot about how the Pac-12 is at a revenue deficit, and the Pac-12, quite frankly, gets dumped on a lot, right, <laughs> because of uh, it hasn't maybe played quite as well and because it's not stacking up revenue-wise to the Big Ten and the SEC. And that has real-life impact on the competitiveness of the Pac-12. However, The Pac-12 as a business still makes a lot of money. And it seems like when I talk to people in the industry who sort of understand the media, the intersection of media and college sports, the money hose is not turning off 
once we get past the pandemic. There is still a lot of value in the content, and there will still be a lot of value in the Pac-12's content. You said that I guess their deal has another six years left? Four, uh, four years, yeah. Four, Four years, and I think the the optimism here, and why I'm, I guess the context I'm slowly explaining to you is that I think that most people feel like once we get past the pandemic, it will be business as usual. And the four years from now, while the Pac-12 might still not stack up to the Big Ten and the SEC in revenue, there will be a lot of revenue there. There's a lot of money waiting for these conferences after we get past that. So this is a short-term problem, not necessarily a long-term problem. The other thing I would add, I actually think the campuses are looking at more of the long-term problem when it comes to student body and things like that. I think it might take the campuses, their hit from this might linger longer than the athletic departments. Now, that, again, that's just my read on it. I'm wondering what yours is. No, that could be because, I mean, I think in a lot of instances, there's going to, you know, this move to remote learning and not packing 200 people, 200 kids into a lecture hall, you know, just have those kids watch from, from their apartments. And it's going to be hard for, uh, hard for the schools to charge the same amount. If, if most of the learning is being done remotely, right? There is certainly a value that's placed on in-person interaction with, with faculty and professors that, that could go missing. And, it will, you know, long-term tuition trends are certainly going to be something that we're going to have to watch very, very closely and enrollment trends uh, and out of state, right? Because so many of these schools make a mint on out of state tuition. So that there certainly is question about, you know, uh, the money flow on the campuses. Uh, I, I agree with you that once we get past this, now maybe that's next summer, uh, you know, when the, the conferences start to do their new media deals, and that starts with the Big Ten, uh, Big Ten's up first. Well, NFL's up first next year, then the Big Ten, uh, Pac-12 and SEC, and the Big 12. It's like all in a row. They're mm-hmm. lined up at the runway, and they all expect uh, to get paid uh, – a premium compared to what they're making right now. Uh, and we've certainly seen that with the estimates on what CB or the SEC is going to get for that game of the week package moving over to, to ESPN. So absolutely, if you're looking out five to 10 years, there's going to be plenty of revenue there, uh, which if the Pac-12 schools take this loan, you know, that money would be there to help them pay off whatever size deficit they have. Okay, so before we start getting into the teams, I, I do need you to, to explain the Pac-12, I think, more than any other conference, is sort of hindered or has a hurdle to deal with as far as state regulations that affect when teams can practice. If you could explain, now the practices are not supposed to start for the Pac-12 until August 17th. Football practices are not supposed to start until August 17th. But right now, there are Pac-12 schools that can do X, while there are other Pac-12 schools that can't do those same activities. So if you could just kind of give, like, give a lay of the land of where things are now, and then we'll talk about what a possible season looks like. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the big issue right now in the Pac-12, the biggest source of concern is uh, in California, uh, and specifically, uh, you know, Cal, USC, and UCLA. They are, uh, right now, 
if, if SC had practiced today, uh, Slovis could not throw the ball to one of his receivers. They are the LA schools are prohibited from throwing the ball. You can't have you can't have two people touching a football. Cal is in the same situation. They could not play uh, pitch and catch, so to speak, right now. Stanford is a little bit different. They could. They could not have a center exchange, but they could have the quarterback throw the receiver because two people can share a ball in, uh, based on the county regulations for Stanford. Two people can share it, not three, so there would be no center exchange. Now, that is very in the weeds, but just to show people what things are like. There's a big concern, given the situation with the virus in L.A. County, when will USC and UCLA be able to actually start conducting real practices? There is a hope that the governor's office is going to come out with some guidelines for higher education, not only for general students, but also for higher education uh, for athletics, for the college football teams, some guidance that will basically loosen restrictions enough for USC and UCLA uh, and Cal to, to have real practices starting on the 17th or close to it. The Pac-12 was originally, you know, when they were going to put out their revised schedule, they were originally going to start on September 19th. But then the presidents got together and uh, there was some serious concern about the status of USC and UCLA being able to play by September 19th. So that's why they, they ended up pushing it back to the 26th to start the season that extra week. Everybody's hoping will give the, the teams in L.A. County a better chance to be ready to go. But that kind of tells you where things are. You can't even throw the ball yet. And we'll see if the governor's office uh, provides some, some clarity. Uh, if, if the schools were, I've looked at the uh, NFL guidelines, and if USC and UCLA were held to the same standards of protocol as the Rams and the Chargers are, I don't see any way that they could play this season. It's just too, it's too much to ask. Resources too great, restrictions too tight. College teams couldn't do it. So they need a little bit of relief on the restrictions from, from the state. Okay. So with that, and boy, that sounds grim. Um, let's, <laughs> let's, let's talk about uh, what this thing might look like when teams actually start playing. It's an interesting conference in that – uh, I think Oregon is the favorite, though it's breaking in a new quarterback, a brand new quarterback after losing a star quarterback, though many other pieces of a good team are still in place. USC is, of course, the never-ending drama and soap opera. Also a very talented roster, but with, the, the again, the never-ending saga of will Clay Helton be fired. Those are probably the two sort of biggest storylines. And then there's a lot of teams that... I'm honestly not sure if they're going up or down. I, I think Arizona State's trending up. Stanford has been trending down, but maybe there's a bounce back possible there. Washington has a new coach in Jimmy Lake. There's some fascinating stories around. So we're not going to hit every single team um, because I don't want to necessarily take you that long. And, and uh, I don't think we're really quite ready for that type of a preview. But give me, let's say, if you're looking at the North, Oregon's your favorite, I assume. I maybe I shouldn't assume, but who's sort of the next in line there? Where you think these are the teams that are probably that are, that are most likely going to challenge Oregon? You know, I kind of like Cal as the most likely to challenge Oregon. They and have been a trendy pick. They are they, they are a trendy been. pick, right? 
Yeah, they did. They every game they were undefeated last year when their starting quarterback was able to stay healthy for for a full game. You know, the thing is, when you're trying to prognosticate this season, part of the calculation I think is the off season and the impact of the lack of the the lack of spring practice, the lack of off season workouts, this entire disruption. That has gone on for all these months, and how do you, so? How do you uh, factor that in? And in my opinion, uh, you know, for all the teams, there's you have to maybe put a greater emphasis on continuity than you normally would. It's always important, but maybe it's even more important this year, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And to me, in particular, you could, you know, a little bit of a kind of draw a triangle offensive coordinator slash play caller in case it's a head coach play caller uh quarterback offensive line i think the teams that have continuity there same playbook same qb same line have got a gigantic advantage more than maybe they normally would so then the question becomes well which teams in the pac-12 and i know i'm kind of getting into south talk a little bit here that's okay feel free feel free to, to to branch it out you know the team that's got the best that best combination is USC because they their play callers back second year under Graham Harrell. Keaton Slovis is back starting quarterback and they got three starters on the offensive line, including a potential all American uh, in Elijah Vera Tucker. It's hard to find another school that's got that combination. ASU's got quarterback, but they got line and play caller issues. Uh, uh, Utah new quarterback, uh, Oregon, new quarterback, base, and a new line. I mean, Penesul is uh, dynamite, right? But the other four starters are new. So Oregon's got new quarterback, four new starters on the line, and a new offensive coordinator. Washington, new quarterback, new coordinator. Uh, Stanford has some continuity, and Cal has got a, they got a new play caller, but their quarterback and offensive line are back. So that's kind of how I approached when I approached it, when I tried to evaluate who who's going to be good and who's going to contend, I know that's kind of a step back from your question, but uh, you know that to no. me that's inseparable this year for when you're trying to pick how things are going to unfold. No, that's a good that's good insight, and I think you know right. We don't know what this is going to look like, but I think that's a fair way to try to project ahead to try to see where there could be some continuity that. Uh, leads to a better record, quite frankly. Uh, you know, like look, look for the right, look for the quarterbacks, look for the places where the fact that they didn't have spring practice didn't mean that they spent a bunch of the spring trying to zoom install their new offenses, right, and their right. new schemes. Their Pac-12 has got three teams: Colorado, Washington, Washington State, that have new head coaches and had no spring practice, mm-hmm. and all three have new quarterbacks. And all three have new play callers. So, like, I mean, you know, Washington is a lot of people like Washington. They've recruited well. They've obviously got a, a great foundation from Chris Peterson, and the defense should be very good. But Washington had no spring practice, has a new offensive coordinator, has a new quarterback. That's, that's tough. So uh, it's just really interesting in terms of how you look at it, and it's hard to find a team that, that where you look at all three of those points and think, oh yeah, they're they're in good shape. All three 
uh, angles of that triangle. Let me touch on Washington here for a second, because I'm fascinated by that team. They were uh, maddening, maddening to watch last year. Among as someone who watches the whole country, right? They were one of those teams yep. I, I saw a lot. I thought would be pretty good, and I would find them like just week to week to be a completely different team from week to week. As if like the preceding week, and I think I'm, I'm stealing this. I maybe from Cecil Hurt, who's a great uh, Alabama sports writer, because I think I seem to remember him saying this or tweeting this last year. Like I would watch you would watch Washington from week to week. And the preceding week looked like there was nothing that seemed to be a cohesive thread through the season. It looked like like one week it would be, boy, this defense is great and this offense is terrible. And the next week you'd be like, boy, that offense is moving pretty well, but like, why can't they stop anybody? That said, that's a long ramp up because they were a frustrating team for me to, to watch last year. Is you know what do you think of Jimmy Lake? And again, there's so little information coming out of these schools these days. You know what might that quarterback situation look like now that they've added a pretty prominent grad transfer? The quarterback room is completely uh, up in the air. I don't know. Uh, you know Kevin Thompson from uh, from Sac State. You know, Big Sky, there have been a couple instances where Big Sky quarterbacks have done really well transferring into the Pac-12. Vernon Adams and Oregon, the best example. But there's also been some instances where they have not been able to, to do it. And uh, I don't know who's going to end up being Washington's starting quarterback. You know, Jacob Sermon, of the returnees, Jacob Sermon's probably the, the best bet. But it will certainly be interesting to see if they can solve some of the problems they had last year. You know, they, there were a couple of weeks where they just no-showed, right? Colorado and Stanford were two games where they just weren't there. And I kept thinking, boy, this just doesn't make sense. And then when Chris Peterson stepped down, it kind of made a little bit more sense. Because you could tell that he – you didn't know it as the season was unfolding. But then when you talk, watched him talk about how he had just, you know – frustration the game wasn't the game wasn't fun it was a slog it kind of made more sense because the players so often you know get their their energy and their vibe from the head coach and if he's if he's struggling you know with those things it's gonna it's gonna seep into the team's performance and and their up and down performance made a lot more sense to me after after he peterson stepped down and explained why he was stepping down jim jimmy likes a different guy He's, uh, he's, you know, maybe a little bit more uh, energy, uh, you know, emotional than, than Peterson was, a little bit more rah-rah, edgy. I think they, their recruiting will change a little bit. Uh, we'll see if their style of play changes. I mean, they, you know, Peterson had a great, great foundation, right? He's one of the best coaches, maybe the best coach at, in the western half of the country for the last, you know, 15 years. Uh, but... They certainly were missing something last year, and and we'll see if they can they can find it again in, under difficult circumstances with with you know the disruption of the off season and and new pieces at several key spots, including quarterback. We'll bop over to the, I know I'd start in the north, but you know what? We're going to bop over to the south for a second because Utah won the South last year and was. You know, one victory away from very possibly making the playoff, and then they just bombed against Oregon and lost that opportunity and ended up losing their bowl game. So, you know, really, it, it had a chance to be a really special season for, for Utah. And it, in retrospect, it was a great season for Utah. But because of the way it ended, it took a lot of the shine off that. They're the one Pac-12 program, when you talk about continuity, that you think 
that actually has it. In fact, the, the entire Pac-12 has been just nothing but disruption and uncertainty, really, for a lot of the last few years. There's just been so much yeah. movement throughout all of the Pac-12. Utah's strength has really been its stability under Whittingham, but they do lose a lot of players this year. How much can that stability under Whittingham provide a floor that guards against a big drop-off? Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I think that their, their floor is... is is higher, so to speak, uh, than than other teams. Uh, you know, it's hard to imagine Utah ever ever getting a, have, finishing with a losing record. The way things are going, because Whittingham's got a way he wants to play, and they they do as good a job of recruiting players to fit the style of the coach. Uh, they as good a job as anybody in the conference, right? And they're physical, and they're also different because they're physical. Uh, much more physical than most of the most of the teams. So I think that there is a limit to how far they might fall. But you know their problem is you know last year their defense was so so good, but they lost you know they lost nine guys. I mean basically the defense is gone. Uh, and whereas the offense, uh, especially their weakness last year, the offensive line, and they've got a lot of guys back on the line, but they got a new quarterback. You know they're hoping that Jake Bentley from South Carolina transfer is mm-hmm. going to be able to. You know, use that experience in the SEC and and you know keep them competitive, competing for the for the division and and pretty good player too. Pretty good player. A lot of ups and downs yeah. and injuries, but pretty good player. Pretty good player, and and you know, can he make plays? Well, Utah has you know the quarterback issue, the downfield passing game issue. They have those things have kind of nagged at Utah for a long time, and you know maybe Bentley is going to help help. Uh, revive them in those regards but that's that's going to be a key their their offense should be ahead of their defense if he can avoid avoid too many misfires right and if if that's the case they'll contend i think that they've got a good chance to contend because they've recruited well enough and they've got enough of a good system in that their defense even though they lost all those guys it should still be pretty good right we know how they're going to play and we know that they're going to be physical and and uh you know it's not like they're they're going to drop off the face of the earth on defense, but it's certainly going to be a step back, and the offense will need to kind of fill that void. Let's uh, roll over to Oregon because they are the favorite. They're the one team I think people look at and say, hey, that could be a playoff team if. Now, frankly, I think that might be a bit of a stretch. I wouldn't be surprised if Oregon actually takes a little bit of a step back this year, but maybe I'm being cynical. You lose Justin Herbert, so you're going to need a new quarterback. They've got a kid who's been in the system for a while, and a lot's going to fall on him. I also am really worried that while they have the best offensive lineman in the country in the country in Penny Sewell, they lost a lot around him on that offensive line. Now, again, the good news is Mario Cristobal recruits offensive linemen really well, so maybe there are replacements in the wings here. But when you look at Oregon, do you see a clear favorite in the conference? Because I think to a certain degree they get portrayed as that, but I'm not necessarily sure they are that. No, I, I do not view them in that way at all. Uh, I think USC is more of a clear favorite in the South than Oregon is in the North, mm. to be honest. When you're looking at competition and how many players you got back and, and where your holes are. I mean, Oregon is replacing a four-year starter, one of the best quarterbacks in, in school history, uh, and, you know, with big question marks, right? Tyler Shuck is the, has been the heir apparent, but then they brought in um, uh, Anthony Brown from Boston College. Uh, 
so there's a lot of uncertainty there. They got a new a new play caller, Joe Moorhead, who certainly, you know, was impressive play calling at Penn State, but it, also he had Saquon Barkley there too. So uh, it'll be real interesting. I think Oregon's defense is going to be stellar, no doubt. But are they going to be able to produce enough offense week after week to win the division, you know, uh, easily and contend for the playoff, right? Because you have to figure that if, if you want to be a playoff contender, you, you, you probably can't have two losses and, and now everybody's adding conference games. So it could be, it could be harder to get through with only, with only one loss. And certainly, uh, you're going to have to have offense playing on the road in some of these games, fourth quarter. Do you have people who can make plays? And if you got a new offensive line, new quarterback and the receivers, have kind of been hit or miss. So I, I see enough holes on off Oregon's offense to think that they're not a clear favorite. What do you think of where is where Chip Kelly's rebuild will be this year? Again, like, you know, it, listen, it's absolutely been disappointing. Now you can make the argument that, well, he really ripped it down to the studs. So this was sort of the two steps back before we take, or one very large step back before you take a big step forward. But, you know, by year three, you got to see some progress. Now, I will also caveat this. I don't think anybody's getting fired this year. <laughs> like, I don't know if anybody <laughs> is getting fired, and certainly not Chip Kelly with a huge contract at a school with a new AD that may have just lost its Under Armour deal. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of firings in general, but I'm almost certain it's not going to come from UCLA with Chip Kelly if UCLA plays. However, you don't know, like what would be success for UCLA this year? Do you think we should expect more, some pro, some real progress at UCLA? We should. <laughs> they got a ton of guys back. He, he, you know, they've had a lot of guys. I think they had 50 guys leave, uh, you know, not seniors, but 50 guys just leave the program in his first couple of years. And, We'll see. They have a, a quarterback now who's basically his third year as a starter, Dorian Thompson Robinson. They should have uh, a decent offensive line, and they got a great chance to open. Right? I mean, if this game is played on schedule, they're opening with USC. To me, that's a you know either you you use that uh, to say things are different, or you get beat, and then the rest of the season becomes kind of a slog into the same old, uh, same old, same old. So. We'll see how it goes, but I think the start, you know, you can certainly identify a couple of teams and think, you know, the start to the season is absolutely crucial, not just to to where they finish, but to the longer term prospects for the for the current head coach and and the you know the trajectory of the of the program. But if Thompson Robinson can, uh, you know, can can play a little bit better, he, he's been turnover prone. I think that that's where it's going to start with with the offense. Let me give you an an either or here. What are you feeling better about? A bounce back to Stanford being Stanford, and that's not to say that they're going to win the conference, but like Stanford looking like what we've come to sort of become accustomed to under David Shaw, which is a, a conference contender who wins big games and uh, you know really looks like a, a formidable team. So would you take that or a big step forward? by Arizona State, which has shown some glimmers of being like on the right track under Herm Edwards. But ultimately, Herm's record is no better than than Todd Graham's record. Now, again, there's some lot of good things going on in recruiting. So it looks like if you're paying close attention that Arizona State could be primed for a big step forward. We'll see. So a big bounce back 
for Stanford or a big step forward for Arizona? Which one of those are you buying? Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I might buy both a little. I think Stanford <laughs> will bounce back if they can stay healthy. They've got, you know, a returning quarterback. They've got uh, stability with the on the coaching staff. And they've got one of the, you know, handful of best offensive linemen in, in the country in left tackle Walker Little if he can stay healthy this year. So I think Stanford will bounce back, and I. Uh, but I also think ASU's got a chance. If, if SC stumbles, to me, ASU is the top candidate to to win the South. Right? Jaden Daniels uh, certainly played very well last year as a freshman, and their defense should be good. Part of ASU's problem has been their offensive line play, and we'll kind of have to see if they're better up front. Uh, they lost their you know their starting tailback, you know Benjamin. And they lost their their big play receiver, Brandon Ayuk. But I think that they've got enough pieces to be able to win that division if SC stumbles. I just think that they basically they've got more pieces than anybody else. Uh, it's almost being the one-eyed man in the kingdom of the blind down there once you remove SC. Uh, and Stanford, I don't know. There, you know, there's something different about Stanford. They don't play the way they used to. They don't maul you at the line of scrimmage. So. Even though I think they'll be better, I don't. I don't see them being, you know, at the top of the division because I think they've they've lost an edge. Uh, you know where they had their big edge, they've they've lost it. You don't think of them as being one of the physically imposing teams in the conference anymore. Okay, well we'll wrap up with this and we're gonna go back off the field because I probably should have talked about this at the beginning, but let's talk about it here because it's probably not a bad place to wrap up. So we are united, Pac-12 players movement now. This is a moving target, so by the time you listen to this, things might have changed. But as of this recording, they are supposed to be meeting via Zoom, because that's the way we do things in the world these days, with the Pac-12 commissioner, Larry Scott, and maybe some other officials from the league, possibly tonight, tonight being Thursday night. So again, this is a moving target. Let me ask you about this. In your discussions with people in the Pac-12, with your sources— how serious, I don't want to say how seriously are they taking this, but let's say how serious are they taking the piece of this where they could see enormous swaths of players not play? Because I think that's the key element here. And we've all kind of written about this and, and talked about this a little bit in our coverage of this is I think what they're doing is it seems like a really good idea for college athletes to unite, organize, get themselves together to show like strength in numbers. But when it comes down to it, it is really hard to get football players not to play. So when you're talking to people in the Pac-12, how worried are they about actual boycotts where a large number of players do not play? I don't think anybody expects there to be significant numbers of, of kids who don't play because of, let's call it, issue-related opposition. I, I think that there will be absolutely uh, some guys who don't play because they have very real underlying health conditions and they're at high and they're at risk. Uh, I think there'll probably be some guys who don't play because they, you know, because of draft reasons, they just want to sit out. But I would be surprised if there's more than, you know, a dozen kids who say uh, I'm healthy, but I'm, I'm disappointed in, in where this movement has finished and I'm, I'm going to protest and I'm going to opt out. I think that is is there's very little chance of that happening on mass, and the reason I think that is because the key pieces to this whole thing for the Pac-12 players are 
racial justice and equality issues, and health and safety. And the conference, some of the things they want were already happening. Some yeah, of them were yeah. already in place, point, and others John. are already happening mm-hmm. and have happened with the NCAA, uh, you know, yesterday. So it's going to be easy for the Pac-12 to meet them where they want to be met on most of their concerns. And I think once that happens, most of them will say, okay, because this at the heart of this movement is the, the health and safety and, and the racial equality. And the Pac-12 was already planning to add uh, an executive level position uh, for diversity and inclusiveness, right? They were already having uh, summits for black student athletes and for head coaches on, on racial issues. This conference has got, you know, going back to Jackie Robinson, a history of uh, being progressive, more progressive than its peers on those matters. I don't think it's going to be hard for the Pac-12 to meet them on that, and I don't think it'll be hard for the Pac-12 to meet them on that medical stuff. Now, if there are any of those kids who are saying, I'm not playing unless I get 50% of the football revenue, well, (laughs) I don't think that's going to happen. But there's no way that's happening. Some of the economic demands were fairly outrageous. Uh, how and I don't get a sense that the players are, you know, tied to those. You know, okay, yeah, let's figure out a way for the players to get two hundred and fifty million dollars here in the next two weeks. Right? That ain't gonna happen. Right. So uh, it'll be easy for the Pac-12 to meet them on the issues that are most important to them. And I think that that will result by the end of next week, my guess is, and most of all these guys saying, okay, we got what we wanted, let's play. Yeah, It is really hard, again, to get football players not to play. It's really hard to get young people all together on the same page. And I think that will always, 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 always be the major hurdle to these type of movements is that it's just, you know, a lot of these kids, the ones who are thinking pros, are often just thinking, man, let me just get through this next couple of years and there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And for others who have more modest aspirations about their college football careers, they're pretty happy to just have the scholarship, you know? Yeah. So, and again, like that's not to say that there aren't kids who have legitimate concerns and that they shouldn't push and, and they should have a greater voice in how things are run. And I think they should probably have a bigger cut. Like, I don't disagree with all of that, but it's just, it's herding cats. It really is like herding cats to try to get all this together. And I applaud them for trying to do it. And as you said, I think ultimately a lot of their concerns are being addressed. So that will probably find a, they'll they'll probably find a, a a good place to land on this. Yeah, and I think another important point is what happened in the Big Ten. Is that yesterday? Or yes. Two days ago? I mean, it feels like three, every day feels like a month. So I'm having trouble keeping track of the news flow. It was but, about you know, the, 24 the, the hours demands, ago. Yeah. <laughs> the Big Ten's players' demands were strictly uh, medical-related, right? They were, uh, in, in some regards, much more focused, uh, the requests much more detailed uh, than, than the Pac-12. But they focused on the medical stuff. And to me, that, that kind of undermines the Pac-12 players, the, the demands on the economic front, right? I mean, the Pac-12 kids are saying on their demands – you know, that these schools have to use their endowment money to keep Olympic sports alive. 
whereas the Big Ten players are saying, can you adjust our stipend to account for the fact that we you know, had to spend more out of pocket during these last five months? That is a s- incredibly reasonable uh, demand. Yeah, uh, well better to be out. targeted. Yeah, I think they did a just better, better job of being very targeted. Yes. Yep. So the Pac-12, you know, I think that that hurts the Pac-12's players' case on, on the economic matters when, when the Big Ten comes out and has no requests on the economic front. John Wilner is with the San Jose Mercury News, and he has been so for quite a while. And he is the uh, brains behind Wilner Hotline, which is the best place for Pac-12 news. It's a really great and important. John is one of the best journalists in the in the business uh, in, of college covering college football. And again, if you like the Pac-12, he is a must read. If you really if you like college football in general, you should probably read John's stuff because his coverage of the Pac-12 definitely resonates throughout other conferences and throughout the country. John, thanks so much for the insight. Appreciate you previewing the off the field, talking about the on the field, uh, talking about the off the field, previewing the season. Hopefully we get to a season. Maybe we'll even actually see each other at a game. Maybe, possibly. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not really banking on that, especially considering we're on different sides of the country. But hopefully, let's be hopeful that we will be, have games to cover and maybe press boxes to go to throughout this season. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks a ton for having me, Ralph. Always, uh, always honored to join you. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. Joining me next on the podcast is David Hale from ESPN. He covers well. He covers all of college football, but he uh, especially focuses on the ACC. And I don't think anybody dives deeper into all of the ACC minutia and number numbers than Dave. So Dave is also I, I like to call him the sports writer. I am most likely to agree with, which is one of the reasons why I have him on here because I wouldn't want anybody disagreeing with me. Dave, how are you, man? I feel like all of that intro is designed to be a compliment, and yet I feel kind of insulted by the whole thing, to be honest with you. Like, I don't want to be the one who knows more about ACC football than anyone, and I don't know if it's a good thing to agree with you on everything. You know what? All of those things are very true. Right. I mean, like, if if, if that's, like, sort of the, the first paragraph on your obit is, you know, new, <laughs> could really break down ACC secondaries. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. Ah, uh, well, you know, we, all, we, we live with the choices we make. Yes, yes, we do. We're going to bring you on to preview the ACC. And, uh, you know, in the past, we've tried to make this like super in-depth and super football-y, and we're going to try to do a, a fair amount of that, but it's not going to be quite as much as that, as I've warned my listeners. So I'm going to give that, that warning again before we talk to Dave, that we got to hit on some of the off-field stuff. And I'm going to try to make it relatively ACC focused as opposed to much broader. So let's let's just start with this. Uh, hey, Notre Dame, Notre Dame's in the <laughs> in the ACC. I'll ask you the question that I think gets asked a lot these days, even though I think the answer is pretty obvious. Do you think this portends to Notre Dame joining the ACC as a full member in the near future? 
Yeah, the timeline is the critical part of this question, because I think in the near future, probably not, uh, because there's not an immense incentive to do it tomorrow or next year or 2022, really. But a few things I think are very important about this. Number one, Notre Dame, assuming this season gets played, is probably going to make more money out of this season than they are used to making because being a part of the ACC is going to be a revenue positive for them. Uh, I think you will see, I mean, look, you know, how many years were spent sort of hand-wringing about, well, we can't lose the Michigan game and then it's lost, and then we can't lose the Navy game. Well, they're not going to play it this year. It's sort of like you realize, like, the things that were built up as these huge important things then get taken away or they happen or whatever, everybody realizes like, oh, it wasn't the end of the world. So I think what clearly will happen is this won't be the end of the world for Notre Dame and people will have gotten a taste of what it's like and realize that that the idea of football independence has some perks to it, but is largely this sort of antiquated thing that Notre Dame wants to hang its hat on. Um, and, and, you know, in the long run, as we start talking about do TV deals get renegotiated and when is... You know, what's the new playoff system going to look like in a few years down the road? And and how much do do conference tie-ins and conference championships matter for the playoff? And, and these kinds of conversations, I think, will only bolster the, the rationale for why it should happen. I, I kind of look at it like uh, th- there's an old Seinfeld uh, line about um, breaking up with somebody that it's kind of like knocking over a soda machine. It doesn't happen on the first push. you got to rock it back and forth. This is sort of the rocking back and forth of, of Notre Dame. I don't think it tips over tomorrow, but I do think this is sort of a, uh, uh, um, a a push in the right direction, or maybe in the wrong direction if you're a Notre Dame fan who values independence. But I think it's the I think it is certainly a, a big push towards something that we have not seen before. And we should uh, point out, because uh, a couple of episodes ago on this podcast, Brett Murph- McMurphy reminded me, you know, Notre Dame is contractually obligated to if it joins a conference to join the ACC, I think through about 2030-something. So it's not like they're, Notre Dame, in the in, again, what define the near future, has other options. It's if you're going to do it, you're going to go to the ACC, and otherwise you're going to stay independent. I believe, I will believe Notre Dame will join a conference full-time when I see it. I believe their DNA is such that it will, not pre- it will prevent them from doing this unless it's under the most most extreme circumstances, for example, a global pandemic. So uh, you're right. I think it is interesting, though, if things in the broader ecosphere of college football align in such a way, it may box Notre Dame into a, a situation of, of joining a conference. I would also say this, though. I have noticed that nobody seems to be trying to do that with Notre Dame. Uh, and and I think that would also be part of this discussion. I think Notre Dame has been given a certain leeway to do its thing, uh, sort of because in college football, nobody likes to be told really what to do. So everybody's a little laissez-faire about trying to push people to do, you know, to do to force them to do things because everybody wants their own autonomy. I would be interested to see if that ever evolved in a way where there was actually a push by other leaders in college sports to sort of make Notre Dame be forced to join a conference. There has been no desire to do that, but who knows? Maybe in the near future, again, whatever you want to define as the near future, that changes. Yeah, it would be interesting, too, because John Swafford has probably been 
at the front of that, hey, we're good with whatever you think, Notre Dame. Whatever you want to do is okay by us. That's a good point. And the next, the next ACC commissioner may have a very different viewpoint about that. And, and certainly as the initial playoff plan was coming together, uh, there was a lot of, of sort of let's figure out how we can make sure that Notre Dame is a part of this too. Um, and maybe, you know, the, the playoff is big enough and successful enough now that it can dictate terms as opposed to having terms dictated to it by Notre Dame. So uh, I do think the landscape has changed where the, there is likely to be more pressure put on Notre Dame in sometime in the, the next decade, let's say. Uh, I don't think that's, as we said, I don't think that's impending, and I don't think it's going to be something that Notre Dame just says, boy, this 2020 season turned out great. Let's just do this full time. That is not going to happen. Okay, one other thing that's off the field related to whether we're actually going to have a college football season, the ACC will start on September 4th, excuse me, the, the week of September 12th. And I guess that also means, they're, they're, I think they're, the schedule that came out today had some Thursday night games on there. I know it's going to dishearten you, Dave, but I haven't really poured over the new ACC schedule, which already <laughs> came out earlier in the day. But when is the first ACC game of the season? You know, this is a great uh uh, question because I have not actually. Oh, really? You haven't? See, I, if I thought if there was one person who actually would have already kind of gone through the ACC schedule because you have, would have been told to do so by your bosses, it would have been you. Okay, so I'm sorry I, to stump I, the band on that one. <laughs> I've just I don't I changed my phone number because there's just been too much news going on, so nobody can uh, can can reach out to me and tell me to go look over the ACC schedule. No, we put Andrea Adelson in charge of that, so that was the problem. Ah, short straw. So she drew the short straw on that. Yeah. So I'm looking, but I am looking this up now, and I believe UAB and Miami on September 10th is our first game. Gotcha. So the the thing that I had a I was got an interview with uh, Mark Emmert. We're taping this on a Thursday. I got I got this interview on Wednesday, and one of the things he brought up was, you know, ultimately we can say even the conferences are going to decide, but really this is going to be institutional decisions on who plays college football, which is really just. A terrifying if we actually get to the point where like not just the, the conferences can't even stay together they start peeling off one by one but really if there's one conference that might have that problem it, to me it could be the ACC just because the footprint is so wide and he mentioned specifically yeah. the pandemic means one thing to Syracuse and another thing to Miami as you've talked to folks in the ACC and just sort of like observed being an observer of the ACC how much do you think those things are being considered and talked about within the ACC of like, boy, it just is going to be a different approach for all of us here. We're not we're, our states are very much not approaching this the same way. Right. I think a little bit of it is going to come down to those sort of state and municipal decisions that are out of uh, even the you know university president's hands. I mean, um, you know, we saw some conversation at Penn State uh, today with, in terms of, you know, the fans that they are allowed to have. Um, I think, you know, in North Carolina here, our, our governor um, has said that we're going to remain in what's called phase two, which would preclude fans from being in the stands in the state of North Carolina, at least through um, that September 10th uh, deadline. So, you know, there's I think there are things that are going to be out of the school's controls in general. Um, as you said, geographically speaking, we're talking about much different areas. And, and in the ACC, probably more than anywhere else, you're talking about metropolitan areas, too. So we're talking about Pittsburgh, Boston, Atlanta, Miami. Um, you know, these are not small college towns where the college really dictates what is happening and what isn't. 
Um, and then moreover, we have, I think, very differing approaches to what a football season means. I mean, uh, a year, you know, playing football is something different at Wake Forest than it is at Clemson, clearly. So while I, I do think tentatively for now, they are putting on sort of the, we're all on the same team, we're all pushing in the same direction here. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see where things go if each next step doesn't sort of happen according to plan. You know, if, if there's a massive outbreak still going on in Miami and the city itself says, look, we can't have large gatherings, what is that? Well, all right, I know that the Miami no fans show up for the game joke will, will, will <laughs> apply here anyway. Um, but, you know, if, if there's an outbreak within North Carolina's roster and they just can't play for three weeks, um, does that matter to Clemson? Does that matter to, to Florida State? I, I think those are big questions. And I think we're less likely to have those conversations about other leagues because they are a little bit more homogenous, both in terms of, of geography and perspective. Um, but on the other hand, um, you know, I, I don't know that these aren't conversations that are happening everywhere to some degree of everybody's kind of looking at contingencies and saying, what, what, what are we going to do? Because I think there has not been a whole lot that has been uh, uniform about the last few months. But one thing that I have consistently heard is nobody at the top is giving us a whole lot of guidelines that are national. Everything is local, local, local at this point. It's what the schools think is best. And the conferences are trying to handle it. The NCA is really not doing a whole lot at all. So when you have a really decentralized leadership structure, I mean, these are the, the questions I think you're going to have everywhere. But, but as you said, I don't know that there is a single league that is quite like the ACC in terms of how, how problematic those types of questions could be. Yeah, these, these conversations have to be going on all over. The previous guest on this podcast was John Wilner, who covers the Pac-12. And, you know, right now there are different things that like USC can do and Stanford cannot. And while teams in that's just within the state of California. So I I do think that within the ACC, that gets even trickier. And I want to bring up this because one of the things I've noted, I think we could see happen. And I think it speaks to what you said about what the importance of a football season, like what is a football season at, at a different, at different schools. I believe that we could see schools get five or six games into this, not necessarily shut it down because they necessarily have to shut it down, but because it gets really hard to keep it up. The money gets very, it gets very pricey and very difficult to keep it up, and their teams aren't very good. So you could see a team, you know, start off one in five and say, listen, this is just not worth it to us. We are struggling a little bit. Maybe we have a few cases. Maybe instead of going on hiatus for a week or two, we are just going to say we're done. And again, I could see that happening. First of all, the success of your team, but also what does football mean? And as you said, throughout the ACC, there are different answers to what does football mean? So. Yeah, I mean, look, it, we're, we're treading into uncharted territory in, in every respect. So everything is sort of a, uh, a I, again, the, the thing that I hear most often is like, we got to be, got to be ready and be flexible because one week is not going to necessarily match the next week. Um, and it'll be really, I mean, it'll be fascinating to me. I, we're already talking about what does it mean to have canceled 
um, non-conference games and, and financially, what is that going to mean? Do schools owe the schools that they canceled contracts with money? And I mean, look, there's, what is the difference? I, I've said this several times. What is the difference between what's happening uh, for Division Three, Division Two at UConn versus everybody else that's still playing? There's no, it's the same virus. We're all dealing with the same problems. The difference is dollars, right? So once the dollar equation doesn't make sense anymore, the obvious answer is let's stop playing playing football. Right now, the dollar equation still adds up, you know, and that risk reward uh, balance that I don't think anybody really wants to talk about openly. But that is the decision making process right now. And at some point, the dollars are going to be a different scenario. And Let's face it, too. The ACC gets less TV dollars than the other leagues do, too. So that's a whole other part of this conversation. If you want to know why the ACC is playing a non-conference game when the other major, well, three of the other Power Five conferences are just playing uh, conference games, part of that is explained by the fact that just what David just said, there's TV inventory and things along those lines. And the ACC kind of needed that extra game to go to 11 games and allow its, its its teams to play 11 games was in part a revenue move, if not yeah, if mean, not it, completely it was, a revenue move. It was revenue, and uh, its two big football voices, Clemson and Florida State, wanted to play their SEC rivals. That that was the conversation, right? Um, right. And and you know, look. I, to me, I've, I've kind of thought like, well, you know, 11 games, 10 games. I mean, if we get one, that's that's uh, great. So yeah, I, I hear don't you know on that, that it, by the way. Yeah. You, you know, yeah. If you're in for 10, you might as well go for 11 and make a little bit more money while you're at it. All right. So let's talk football. And we talk about being flexible. First of all, it's taken Dave and I three days to get this thing recorded. <laughs> Secondly, right before we were about to touch base, Gregory Rousseau, the really excellent defensive end preseason All-America type player for Miami, he told Manny Diaz that he was opting out. He informed Manny Diaz that he was opting out while Manny Diaz was on a Zoom with reporters where he had already said, all my team will be here. So that's how quickly things are changing and how much flexibility we need to have in college sports. Um, Isn't that 2020 college sports reporting in a nutshell right now? It's like that. That moment of being on it. Try explaining that to Ralph Russo from 12 months ago <laughs> that uh, one of the best players, All-American, is going to opt out via this uh, thing called Zoom uh, live as it's happening before the season even starts. What a what a hilarious and terrible time to be alive. It, it, it's, it's true. And also, it's a, it's a story that would be, you know, under normal circumstances, let's just say, like, you know, a, a, a player of that level who – would opt out before a season maybe because he would like this would have been just an enormous deal right like today it's just a blip it's just, oh like i mean especially <laughs> for someone like me who covers the sport nationally it's like oh i'll just i'll just fold that into my Micah Parsons story cuz he already opted out today right, so right um, he's not even the only one today right right he's the second best he's one of the best players in the country but only the second best player today to opt out of the covid-19 season Let's start with Miami because I always feel like they're the most intriguing program because hey, it's Miami and they've won the conference. They've won the division only once since they've come into the conference. And who could have seen that coming 15, 20 years ago when they joined? So 
Even without Rousseau, there's still some reasons to think that Miami has some optimism to really end up being a lot better in Manny Diaz's second season than it was in what turned out to be kind of an embarrassing first season. Where do you think Miami could go this year? Look, I'm still fairly high on Manny Diaz. Uh, I think he learned some hard lessons in year one. Uh, but he's also a really smart guy who learns lessons as opposed to just you know beating your head against the wall and doing the same thing because that's what you believe in doing. There was clearly some real problematic chemistry on the offensive side of the football. They were a good team defensively. like That was still a pretty good defense. Um, but offensively, they just couldn't get out of their own way most weeks. And by the end of the year, had I think I wouldn't be speaking out of turn to say half the guys in that offense had flat out quit. Um, we're in a much different scenario this year. They bring in Rhett Lashley as the new offensive coordinator. I think stylistically, he fits well there with what the, the type of talent that Miami brings in, the skill position guys that they typically have. Uh, the question's been at quarterback. You know, it's been a while since we've seen them in a really good position with quarterback, and now they've got Derek King. And, and we had uh, Andrea Adelson and Eric McLean and I kind of before uh, the, the world blew up with, with changes, schedules, and all of this, talked about what our all-ACC picks might be. And uh, we talked about who the most interesting player in the league was. And all three of us agreed it's Derek King. I mean, you look at what he did at Houston a couple of years ago, and, I mean, he was putting up Heisman numbers before he got hurt. And, but now we're talking about him playing in a Power 5 league which you know, I'm sure Mike Oresco and the folks at the American would, would argue he already was. Uh, but um, you know, he hasn't really played in a year. We're under these weird circumstances. He's in a new place where he didn't get a real spring practice with the guys that he's supposed to be leading now on offense. All of this is very fascinating, uh, which is to say, I mean, much like every year with Miami, I, I, there's, you could very easily make the case that they are the most talented team in the Coastal and have a chance to win that division and be a very good team. Um, if you watch them play the last month of the season last year, you would be hard-pressed to believe in that argument. But but um, I, I do think, even without Rousseau, they're going to be really good up front defensively. They're good in the secondary. Uh, Zach McLeod at linebacker, I think, is, is one of those sort of under-the-radar players. And it, so it's a matter of, look, is, is Derek King Houston Derek King, or is he just the next in line of, Miami quarterbacks who didn't pan out. To me, that's the question. Is Notre Dame the second best team in the ACC? I've had somebody ask me that question, and I guess I, you know, again, it's hard to think of Notre Dame as in a conference, and so I had to sort of pause and think about it. Um, and I think they are, but I don't think they necessarily. I think you have to consider them the second best team in the ACC. But I don't think there are any lock to be the second best team in the ACC. There are other contenders, quite frankly. I think Miami could be. But who else? Who? I mean, okay. First of all, Clemson—they're awesome. We will get to Clemson at least a little bit. But I don't want to believe like waste too much time talking mm-hmm. about how awesome Clemson is. So who's second best? Is Notre Dame? I mean, if you go by where did we land at the end of last year, what's on paper? Yeah, Notre Dame is probably the second best team in, in the conference. I would say the thing about Notre Dame is that's not been a particularly dynamic team. They've been more talented, and they don't really make a ton of mistakes. And in the ACC, that's probably a pretty good combination. But you look at a team like North Carolina, and, you know, all right, so they finished last year 7-6. and six. It's hard to say they're ahead of Notre Dame today. But, boy, there's a lot of pieces to like there. And Sam Howell, I'll take Sam Howell over Ian Book any day of the week. And they've got this great core of receivers and really good running backs. And 
one of the best linebackers in the country and Chaz Surratt and, you know, uh, some, some young and really quality defensive backs and uh, Tom and Fox and some guys on the defensive line. You, you, know, you can just go through that North Carolina roster and say, boy, they're, they're not far off. And I think if, if we'd had a more traditional offseason and some of the freshmen that they brought in were maybe a little better prepared uh, to play day one, I would probably be even more optimistic on saying that. Um, you know, I think certainly Louisville showed a lot last year. I think they still got a ways to go on defense. But the other team that really fascinates me that nobody's talking about because everyone is offensive obsessed these days, uh, but is Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh mm-hmm. is probably going to be as good defensively as any team in the country. And I know that will sound ridiculous to people. They have four potential NFL guys on their defensive line right now. They've got probably three more in their defensive backfield. They've got some experienced, talented guys at linebacker. They were really good on defense last year. They should be better this year. They might still finish seven and well, in a normal year, seven and six, you know, they might still be a, a game or two over 500 type of team, maybe, because I don't know how good they can be offensively. They were challenged on the O-line last year. Kenny Pickett sort of is what he is. Um, but they're going to be in every game because that defense is so good. So if they can have one of those years where, you know, they, you play six games that, that are decided by a touchdown or less, and they go five and one in them, we're talking about a team that I think defensively can challenge anyone. So it's just a matter of can Kenny Pickett in that offense make just enough plays to win those close games as opposed to last year where they, I think they finished three and four in games decided by 10 points or less. This, if, they, if they can better that this year, I think they're as good as, as anyone outside of Clemson in the ACC. Yeah, that's uh, uh, Paul Meyer, Meyerberg, our pal, uh, uh, clued me into Pittsburgh very early in the offseason. Uh, when we were still thinking that like we could talk about regular stuff in the off season, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I I agree with you. In fact, it, and I think they are a team that now that we don't we no longer have divisions and it's it's a ten game schedule. That's the team. I, you know, I thought that there was a chance within a coastal within within yeah. a, that's always going to be a little uh, unpredictable. That Pittsburgh had a chance. I, I could definitely see a, a, a path where Pittsburgh all of a sudden emerges from the coastal as a division winner. Now that it's you know one through fifteen, and you got more conference games involved, uh, probably a little bit of a stretch. I like the way you describe Notre Dame. Not the most explosive team. It really has been. It's been the biggest problem for Notre Dame to like sort of separate them from the very good and the elite or the to- really top tier programs. Is that? You know, for some reason, they just don't tend to have like a really explosive offense in there. And North Carolina, yeah, we'll see, right? I mean, I think I I think that there's a lot of momentum heading forward with North Carolina. I also think that I always worry about teams that sort of get pegged with what North Carolina is being pegged as, which is they're sort of the hot team coming into the season. They're the trendy team. And for them to make another big leap forward after having a season last year where they lost a lot of close games. So you didn't mention Florida State in there, which I think is fair. But what do we see out of Florida State with a first-year coach that didn't have spring practice and is just getting his team together now? Yeah, I mean, at Boston College, another team I wouldn't necessarily write off because they've got a lot of veteran returning talent. Um, Phil Jerkovic getting uh, the waiver to play right away gives them a quarterback with some real talent too. But in a similar situation to, to Florida State, and you bring in a new coaching staff with a new identity and 
a, a new scheme and you say, how do you, how do you learn that in this type of an off season? How do you implement everything that you want to implement in this type of an off season? And I think it's just going to be really hard to do. You don't build culture via zoom uh, and you can't, um, you know, lay the groundwork on, on your playbook via zoom. You've got to get out and actually do it. You got to have guys be around each other. Um, and it's just going to be hard to do. So I think look, Florida state was probably a little behind the eight ball to begin with, because they really don't have a quarterback at this point. Um, I think, you know, Chuba Purdy, there's some folks who would really be high on him. But again, I think this is not the year that you're going to see a ton of freshmen having um, amazing seasons, particularly at quarterback, uh, because of the way the off season has gone. Um, you know, they, they lose, uh, Kalen Laybourne was, was, you know, booted off the team and was really probably going to be, uh, uh one of the better backs in the league. Th- they've just got some issues in a lot of places and the same issues that have been going on and. And this is what happens when you have a coach that's there for less than two years and none of those issues get addressed or fixed. I mean, it, it was a big, I don't want to say even a rebuild because it's, it almost sounds ridiculous to say a rebuild at Florida State when they have as much talent as they have. It's just the last few years and really since even before Jimbo left, the talent is sort of pooled in the same two or three position groups. And then you have something like offensive line and quarterback that have just been black holes. And I mean, aside from Tamari and Terry, I mean, wide receiver has been dismal for them for the better part of, of, of the last seven or eight years. So um, there's just a lot of, of need for an influx of talent there that I just think the turnaround on that takes longer than um, what we, you know, I, I just don't think they're in for sort of like Louisville last year where things were so bad, but there was probably more pieces there and it was just bad because of Petrino. I think this is a little bit more of a work in progress and, uh, you know, 2021 is probably more of a Florida State year than 2020 would be in my mind. You mentioned Louisville, Virginia Tech comes to mind. Two programs sort of on a different trajectory right now. We're not really sure what the next move is here for Virginia Tech, right? We're not like there was some good signs with Justin Fuente early on, a little bit of a, a skid, but now it's his. Now, now the program is is very much all his. Um, the fact that they righted the ship last year after what looked like it could have been a season that skidded out of control seemed to be heartening. Uh, there is no more Bud Foster there. What's the trajectory of Virginia Tech? Now, the funny thing is, I think we could have been coming into this season saying, like, boy, if it goes really bad, they could maybe even fire Justin Fuente. I don't know if anybody's getting fired in college football this year. But where is the trajectory with Virginia Tech right now in your mind? So it's fascinating because I tended to kind of view last year as a little bit of a mixed bag, obviously, but, you know, kind of riding the ship in a terrible ACC maybe didn't mean quite as much to me as it meant to certainly some Virginia Tech fans. Um, But I I do an exercise sort of every offseason where I go through and I kind of chart out position by position and add them all up and say, like, who who's good and who's bad based on this archaic point system or whatever. And and and. Every year, I tend to be a little bit surprised at how I rank some teams and, and how the numbers come out. And, and Virginia Tech was that team this year where they were, you know, just based on my really shorthand analysis, they seemed like the second most talented team in the ACC when you kind of went position by position. And I was like, well, you know, I just hadn't thought of them as being that good, but they do have a lot of pieces in place. But the thing that I just can't get past is, as you said, this is Justin Fuente's team now. And you look at the, the, the sheer number of folks who have transferred out is, is a little bit head-scratching. The way that things went with his flirtation with Baylor was awfully frustrating for folks. Uh, he came out and had some 
kind of harsh comments about transfers after he <laughs> nearly transferred his himself to Baylor. Um, the comments from Caleb Farley when he decides to opt out and how kind of it seemed like even the the health procedures there were a mess. Now, Virginia Tech has tried to walk that back a little bit, and I'm certainly not in a position to say what did or didn't happen. Um, but it just doesn't feel like there is a cohesive uh, approach, cohesive culture there. Um, I don't know. I mean, part of me, I, I'm never going to say that, that a program is better off without Bud Foster running the defense, but part of me wonders how much of, of the last few years has been about, like, you know, Frank Beamer's still around campus all the time, and Bud Foster was still coaching the D, and and how much really was this Justin Fuente's team? So, uh, you know, to answer your question, I think there are a lot of pieces there. But I don't, you know, I, I, I am, I'm very much an X's and O's, numbers, data guy. I don't believe a whole lot in this sort of the vagaries of, of the things you can't measure. But there does sort of feel like a thing you can't measure going on at, at Virginia <laughs> Tech right now. And I need to see them really put forth a consistent effort over a longer period of time for me to be bought in. Okay, so I'm going to give you a choice of these two things. We're going to play one of those like uh, embrace debate programs, and you, know, you got <laughs> which, which one of these do you buy? Do you buy because uh, two of my favorite coaches in the ACC are Scott Satterfield and Dave Clawson? Which would you rather buy? Another step forward for Louisville under Satterfield? Or Clawson being able to prevent a big step back for Wake, because I think Wake could be in for a big step back. And I'm, but I'm also not necessarily a hundred percent sure. Even though I think there's probably a thought among Louisville fans: Hey, man, look at what we did last year. We are ready to roll. We're gonna we're gonna go from eight wins now to ten wins. But I'm not so sure about that because I just don't know yeah. if rebuilds are always linear. So if I said I'm going to give you one of these things. I'm going to give you Clawson keeping Wake Forest afloat and sort of bowl eligible or Louisville jumping forward another step and really challenging the upper reaches of the conference aside from Clemson. Which one of those things are you taking? So I'm with you on Louisville. I think, look, I love Scott Satterfield. I think he is a brilliant offensive football coach. Um, I think they have some real talent there, especially on the offensive side of the ball. But so much of, of them being better last year was a product of them kind of regressing to a mean. They were so bad the year before for reasons that had less to do with, with talent. So, you know, I think people look and say they made this huge step forward and all they got to do is stay on that path. I agree. It's not linear. They're not going to stay on that path. The next step forward will be a smaller one. Um, I think they can be certainly better on defense. They were not great last year. I don't know if Mikhail Cunningham puts up the same kind of numbers that he did last year. I'm, I think they're probably going to end up a little bit around the same area they were last year. I don't really, I'm not sure I would buy them taking this sort of grandiose next big step. I agree with you on Wake too, uh, in that, you know, as I went through and did my numbers, Wake was the team that I kind of thought, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I think it's going to be a tougher road for them. Now, uh, is Sam Hartman able to do kind of the same types of things that Jamie Newman did? Does Sage Surratt stay healthy all year? Um, I, there's some big question marks there. They're, they certainly did not get uh, a friendly schedule with this schedule makeover either. I mean, they're going to go through 
a pretty tough road. But I also tend to think that Dave Clawson is the type of guy who will make it as hard for you to beat him as probably any coach in the country does. I mean, just think back to those just terrible Wake Forest teams his first couple of years and the games that they would win six to three or something like that. <laughs> like that was because he would do whatever he had. I mean, he's sort of like the, the, the guy who pokes eyes and, and pulls hair when you get in a, in a fist fight, like whatever it takes to, to have my chance to win this fight, I'm going to do it. And so I, I don't think Wake Forest is going to be able to win as pretty as they did last year, but it wouldn't surprise me if they can still stay sort of around that, 500 or game over type of thing just because i think he's really smart and good at maximizing what he does give me one team it could be one of the ones we've talked about but maybe not maybe try from the pool that we haven't where you think i feel like i'm higher you we feel like me david hale is higher on this team than the general consensus Maybe it I mean, was Pitt Wake. Is probably, yeah. yeah, Pitt's probably the, the, the team that I'm higher on than everybody else is. But I'll, I'll throw NC State out there, too. I mean, I, I don't think they're quite in that situation like Louisville was a couple of years ago, maybe a little closer to North Carolina, where it's just like everything that could go wrong went wrong last year. They uh, you know, had a lot of youth. A lot of guys got hurt. Um, they had bad luck across the board from turnovers to all the things that are genuinely defined by luck. Uh, statistically. So that's a team to me that, that I think if they just go out there and play to their capabilities of exactly what they were last year, um, but luck alone should give them an extra couple of wins. Uh, and I think they should be better. They'll have, they figured out who they want as their quarterback. I was going to say, you can't um, be as bad a quarterback right. two years in a row. It's almost impossible. They, they were such a black hole. You hate to always lay it on those kids, but they were just, <laughs> right. they were really horrendous last year. It was a mess, but they've got, look, they've got one of the better O-lines in a league that really does not have a lot of good O-lines and really needs them because they have a lot of good pass rushers in the ACC. Uh, so they got a decent O-line. They've got a good backfield. Um, I, I I like the direction that that supposedly this defense is going to go in under new defensive coaching staff. I'm, you know, I, I'm not going to go out there and say NC State challenges Clemson and is the second best team, you know, among what would have been the Atlantic. But I do think, you know, this is a that's a team that struggled to get uh, any wins last year. I think that's a 500 team this year. So I, I'm not look, I'm not banging down anybody's door and saying you need to go pick. Uh, NC State, but this—if this was a normal season where we were playing a normal schedule—that'd be a team I'd have circled to say go go to Vegas and plop down a bet on the over. I think they're going to exceed expectations. Okay, last thing here, we'll return to the off the field stuff, but not necessarily the pandemic stuff. And you mentioned that John Swafford uh, earlier this year announced that he would be stepping aside. Uh, he's had a great run, I think, with the ACC. My opinion is that he quite literally saved the conference. There was a point mm-hmm. when. He expanded when the conference was vulnerable to having what happened to the Big East happen to the ACC. Um, I, I don't know if you've done any serious reporting on this, but maybe you've at least thought it over. What do you? Who do you think would be next for the ACC? Or maybe what? Maybe better as opposed to specific people. What direction do you think the ACC heads next with commissioners? Because I, I think, as we saw with the Big Ten, you know, it's not necessarily going to be. It doesn't necessarily have to be obvious these days. Yeah, and it wouldn't surprise me if it's something not at all obvious. Um, I think, you know, there's names that I think everybody has sort of thrown out and I think are reasonable to talk about, whether it's Dan Radakovich at Clemson, 
uh, John Wildhack at Syracuse, some of those guys that have ACC ties already and, and sort of fit some of the criteria. But, you know, when you look at criteria, first of all, I would agree with you. I don't think people will never appreciate what John Swafford did for the league um, because it's one of those things that you get criticized for where you are and nobody pats you on the back for the tragedies you avoided, the <laughs> trades you didn't make type of thing. Um, I think uh, the, the criticisms, though, that probably are a little bit justified, uh, the ACC was clearly very slow to a network. And, you know, here we are in, in 2020, and they're a year into ACC network, and I thought they did some very nice things with it. But at the same time, our, our media landscape is changing dramatically how people consume their media is changing dramatically and so i think you need someone who is very keenly aware not just of the sports business the athletics and, and the the college uh side of things but as we move into name image like this as we look at you know how how streaming has taken over sports media content um i think you need somebody who is very savvy from that end of things and then the other obvious criticism of Swafford over the years is he was a triangle guy. He was North Carolina. <laughs> he was basketball, basketball, basketball. I, I have and, to note something. So, of course, I'm glad you brought that up because today I've noticed uh, Florida State fans complaining about their schedule on Twitter. <laughs> so that's Florida the- State fans are 100% certain that John Swafford has been out to screw them for the entirety <laughs> of his his existence. Uh, but, I mean, but I get it. The ACC's problem i think was that it was very comfortable being a basketball first league for a long time but while there is certainly money and cachet and being great in men's basketball as they have been uh the disparity in the revenue generated by the two sports has only grown and football is by is is the the mammoth beast and you know if you're florida state and clemson i think it, it is it's a warranted criticism to some extent that you know, more should be done to focus on football. More should be done to, you know, if you're Clemson and you're busy trying to uh, make the case for your schedule every year, even though you've been great in winning national championships and you still have to defend yourself, that's got to, I'm sure that makes some Clemson fans angry and reasonably so. So it wouldn't surprise me if they really want to go with a more football centered hire as well. So, I mean, when you talk about somebody like Dan Radakovich, and I, I have, not talk to anybody who has said that this is definitely their guy or, or high up on their list even, but he is very forward thinking. He is very business first, but he's from a football school and will prioritize football. I think that is sort of the profile of what you're looking for is somebody who is going to be, um, have a real vision in terms of marketing the media landscape and somebody who is going to embrace football in a way that maybe the ACC hasn't before. David Hale covers college football for ESPN with a focus on the ACC. I feel like nobody knows the league better. David, really appreciate you doing this another year with me. I think this is like three or four years now you've agreed to do this. So I I very much, uh, again, appreciate your time. It's been hard to figure out a day to do this because we've all been so busy with so much news lately. Listen, hopefully, I think we're going to start a season. I do. I think we are going to start a season. I don't know if we're going to finish a season. I don't know what it's going to look like by the time we get to the end. Uh, It might not be the prettiest, but um, maybe we'll even get to a point where we will actually be able to see each other during the season. What do you think? I would love that. But I will say I have not checked my email since we got on this call to, to do this podcast. 
So it's entirely possible that the season has shut down. Yeah. <laughs> Everything that we just talked about was wrong. I would just say, hurry up and post this because I'm not betting on anything at this point. Uh, but yes, I hope at some point we can uh, we can raise a glass to uh, how we have managed to survive all of this somewhere. David Hale from ESPN. Thanks a lot, man. My pleasure. And now three and out. And folks, my brain is a little fried, so I'm going to make these fairly short. First down. UConn decided to take a redshirt year in football, the entire program. And I bet if you went and asked some coaches at teams that are deep into the start of a rebuild, they would absolutely vote on hitting pause and taking a year off, letting a bunch of the upperclassmen cycle off and giving the rest of the roster a year to train and grow both physically and mentally. UConn did just that. I am positive if the option was given to other programs, they would do it too. I don't necessarily think you're going to see that, but as I've said multiple times on this show and maybe even earlier in this show and on Twitter and on other appearances I've done on radio, I really do think you'll see teams that start the season poorly shut down their season when they decide this is really not worth it. Second down. Playing off our Pac-12 preview, I know Cal is getting a lot of love. And I think, again, this is another thing I might be repeating myself on, but it's worth saying again. Put me down as a little skeptical of the Bears really threatening in the Pac-12 North. Unless the North becomes a real shamble with Oregon not pulling away from the pack, struggling with their offense, Stanford not really riding the ship and rebounding, Washington needing a year to acclimate after all of its changes. If that's the case, if the North is one with three losses, let's say, I think Cal is in the mix. Third down. As for the ACC, we didn't talk much about Clemson. I'm guessing we'll get to the Tigers more in the overall season preview that should come out in a few weeks after the AP poll is released. The AP preseason top 25 is coming out on August 24th. We had initially planned on August 17th. I may have mentioned it here on the show. I probably tweeted it. But as with so many other things in life these days, those plans have been changed. August 24th, target that date for the AP preseason top 25. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Westwood One Podcast. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back next week for the AP top 25 college football podcast. Hopefully, we'll be doing more conference previews. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC.